First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So last week, we considered that our identities are formed by our memories, our experiences, our relationships, and our values that create a sense of self. All those factors come together and we have this sense of ourselves. And then the time and seasons of our life and all the things that we're going through, those affect our perceptions and how we perceive not only ourselves but also how we perceive others. And our identities also encompass opinions, attitudes, and beliefs which guide the choices that we make. So that means that from the time that we are born, in fact, even before we are born, from when we are in our mother's wombs and our parents are saying something about us, even before we're born, oh, my child is going to be like this, and I'm going to do this with my child. They're speaking all those things already, even before you were born. In fact, even before you were born and before and right up until we die, there are multiple sources telling us who we are or who we should be, what we should think, how we should behave, who we should compare ourselves to or not compare ourselves to, and how we should value ourselves. All the time, these messages are coming. And so then it is vitally important for us to carefully examine what is it that is influencing us? What is it that is setting that identity for us? What are we paying attention to? Are we being shaped by the world, which means our own culture and society and all of the things around us, family, tradition, all of that? Are we being shaped by the world, our own flesh, our desires, and the devil into the image of the world, into what the world says is good? Or are we being shaped by God and his word into his image, into what the Lord says is good. Through his word, his spirit, and his church, the Lord points us to the glorious realities of love and light and truth and wisdom and life that provides our best possible identity. God has said, this is what is ideal. This is your best possible identity. And what is that? To be called, to be adopted, to be received as his sons and daughters. And he says, this is what is the best possible identity for you. That you would be found in Christ, that you would be known in Christ. And from the passage that we considered last week, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, we saw that our identity in Christ includes being living stones that build up the house of the Lord and being royal priests who serve in the house of the Lord. So we have this 
dual work of the Lord in our lives, to build us up and to allow us, to empower us to serve in the house of the Lord. It is when our identity is in Christ that we can live, as we've read here in these verses, we can live as exiles on earth and also live good lives before the world. It's only when we have our identity in Christ that those two things are possible. Otherwise, we're torn. We don't know where we belong. We don't know what we should do. But when we are founded firm in Christ, we are able to do what this verse is calling for. But, and, and understand this. Notice this. That Peter doesn't say that the world will acknowledge that you're living a good life. The world will not say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, great, great, you're, you're living a godly life. The world will not say, your life is very attractive to me and I want that. They won't readily say that. In fact, when you are living, when you are striving to live according to the word of God, the world will speak against you as an evildoer. Right? That's what the verse says. Now, you don't have to go into a lot of detail as to what that means, but just the idea, just to be prepared, not that you would be surprised. Oh, I'm doing good. How come people don't think I'm doing good? Don't worry about that. That's not what your goal is. You're not trying to please people. You're not trying to say, look at me, I'm doing good. You're saying, I respond to the word of the Lord and his identity in me. But there, as we continue to read this, what you're seeing is as we continue to live a good life, or as the ESV puts it, when you keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, when you live in that consistency of what the call of God is, even if the world accuses you of doing wrong today, they will have no other option than to acknowledge God to glorify God on the day of his visitation tomorrow. Today they may say, oh, I don't receive what you're saying. But tomorrow when he is visiting, when he comes, they can't help but acknowledge the truth. You see, the visitation of the Lord can refer to the day of judgment, and we would see that, we know of that, uh, the Bible tells us that. But the day of visitation also refers to when God intervenes in a person's life. When God shows mercy, when a person is directly confronted with the unquestionable reality of the true and living God. And so each of us are called to live our lives as a compelling declaration of who God is of the character and authority of God, of the mercy and kindness of God, of the love and compassion of God, of the understanding and wisdom of God, of the justice of God, and of the saving grace of God. We are called to live in such a way that those truths get declared in the way that we speak and the way that we act and the way that we live and the way that we conduct all the things of our life that people would hear this message about the Lord these truths about the Lord. Our lives are to bear such a strong witness to the validity of God's truth that even if people willfully reject the truth, they will not be able to deny it. It's like they can say, I don't want this. I don't receive this. I'm not going to live by this. But they can't deny that there is the truth. It will be front and center in terms of how we live. 
So how should we live good lives in the world? Peter makes two points. The first about what we should not do and the second about what we should do. And the first one is this. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Or in other words, don't indulge sinful desires. We have in our previous study of the scriptures learned that thoughts awaken desires, ungodly thoughts awaken sinful desires. And Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 21 provides a list of many of the desires of the flesh. But you don't need an exhaustive list to serve as your evaluation checklist. You don't have to go through and say, let me see, there's my list, you know, 15 items, uh, one, two, three, four, um, okay, I've, I, I, you know, there are four of these items on 15 that I can check off that I know are my sinful desires. But that's not so bad, right? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. This is not this is not the purpose of the list that is given. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list so that we can say, I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. I've only got four. No. The idea here is that we would submit every desire, regardless of whether we think it's a good desire or not, we submit every desire to the Lord. Because unchecked sinful desires lead to unbridled thoughts about how to fulfill those desires. Once that desire starts to take a hold of you, now you're thinking, how do I make this happen? Who do I talk to? Where do I go? What resources do I need? How do I get this to happen? And the desire may seem extremely good to you. Most of us don't start out saying, oh, this is a terrible thing that I'm desiring, but I'm going to make it happen. We think it's a good thing. So it's necessary for us to submit our desires to the Lord. To say to Him, Lord, you have to be the Lord over this desire of mine. To bring it in line with the Word of God. Not whatever I think. Not whatever I desire. And then trying to make that happen. Unchecked sinful desires leads to all these unbridled thoughts and then that vicious cycle of sinful thoughts and sinful desires leads to our indulging our desires in ways that are incompatible with God and His holiness, inconsistent with God's word and disobedient to His commands. That's what ends up happening. So we've got to be mindful of how we will address our desires. Now here's an important point to note about our sinful desires. Peter says that our sinful desires wage war against our soul. When we become children of God, when we yield to the Lordship of Christ, when the Lord heals us of our past hurts, when we pray for our minds to be aligned with the mind of Christ, when we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, our old self, our flesh, the flesh that wants its own way, our sinful desires start to wage war against our thinking, our own thinking, our own emotions, our own intellect, our memories, our souls. The old self now starts to fight. I don't want to change. 
I don't want to give up. I want to have what I want to have. And the old self is at war with our own souls. And this, is, this war is not a limited in engagement. It's not a minor skirmish, right? It's not just a brief little thing. This is a perpetual war for all of your life. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> your sinful desires are waging war with you for all of your life. It's not just a limited engagement. You know, a few years and hey, I'm good. No, they're at you and they're going after you. Why? Because the enemy is none other than yourself. And you can't run far away from yourself. You can't get away from yourself. You can't declare a truce with your sinful desires. You can't say, you know, let's just have an agreement. You don't bother me, I won't bother you. Right? There is no demilitarized zone that your desires won't cross. You can't draw boundaries. It's all in here. The only option in a perpetual war of this kind is when somebody dies. The only option is to win each individual battle on each and every front. Different areas of life that come at you. And you think everything is okay on the western front, but all of, all of a sudden, out from there, oh, right there on the flank that you weren't prepared for, your sinful desires. Not even the enemy, you're not even the devil, not the world. Your sinful desires come straight through. And you're caught unawares. You don't know what to do. So how do we wage war against our own sinful desires, against our own flesh? We know that we must deal with the world by fleeing from temptation. We deal with our flesh by taking our thoughts captive and crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires. And we deal with the devil by rebuking the devil in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus. But I want to say to you that we have to be careful that we don't apply the wrong tactic to each of these battles with the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, we cannot take captive or rebuke the temptations of the world. The Bible says we must flee from temptations of the world. We cannot take captive temptations. You cannot get into a situation where you say, I know this is tempting for me. Maybe it's something that you see. Maybe it's something you hear. Maybe it's something you eat. Maybe it's something you do. But you can't say, I'll see how strong I am. I'll go and face this temptation and I will show this temptation, this sinful desire of mine. I'll show it how strong I am. No, the Bible actually says, flee from these kinds of temptations. And this is a military tactic, by the way. You have to know the strength that you have and what's, that, what's happening on that front. And there are plenty of times when you tactically will withdraw. You will not engage. You will flee because you said, I, I cannot do this on this front in this time like this. I have to withdraw. 
And the Bible says that when it's temptations that are coming at you, temptations that will ask you to give in, because this is who you are. I've always done this. I've always been like this. My parents did this. My dad, oh, it's, it's you know, my dad used to do this exactly like this. And the temptation will come. You can't take it captive, and you can't rebuke it. You can't say, oh, in the name of Jesus, I resist it, or I rebuke this temptation. No, the Bible says flee. Get as far away from it as possible. Don't entertain it. Don't stay in its presence. Don't keep sort of coddling it. Run. And then, we can't flee from the devil or take the devil captive. Even though we're supposed to take our thoughts captive and even though we're supposed to flee from temptation, we can't do those two things about the devil. Because if you try to flee from the devil, he will outrun you. And if you try to take him captive, he'll say, who are you? I know Paul and I know Jesus. Who are you? Right? But the point that I want to make to you is this. The Bible says we rebuke the devil. We resist the devil. We take a stand and we fight against the devil. It's a different tactic. It's a different strategy. You can't apply the same thing that you did for temptations in the same way against the devil. You have to stand. You have to say, oh, this is not even an evil desire, a sinful desire that's prompted by my flesh. This is a sinful desire that is coming directly from the pits of hell. And I rebuke, I stand against the principalities and powers. I stand against what the devil is bringing. And I will fight. I put on the armor of God and I fight. But this morning, in the context of what we're talking about in terms of abstaining from sinful desires, I want to remind you that when it comes to our flesh, we cannot rebuke our flesh. We cannot say, oh, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke my flesh. You know, be gone, my flesh. Right? And we can't flee from our own flesh. How far will you go? Just a brief thought away. There is no place to run away from your flesh. The sinful desires of the flesh remain. And so it is necessary for us to die to self. There is no other way. There is no other option. The old man has to die. The new man has to be raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. If we're not conscious of that, if we're not aware of that strategy, if we're not thinking of that, if we're not paying attention to that, we will try to deal with our flesh with all sorts of other ways, in all sorts of other ways. And let me make this point to you this. This is a call for us to crucify ourselves. You know what our temptation is? To crucify everybody else's self. Right? We do this all the time. We're saying, I see the sin in you. You need to die to self. And we are quick to point out to somebody else why they should die and how they should die and when they should die. Ruth Graham was asked if she had had conflicts with Billy Graham, her husband, and whether she had at any time contemplated divorce. And she said, divorce never. Murder, many times. <laughs> right? That's what we do. 
we, we'll stick it out, we'll do the things, but we're constantly looking for how we can put to death the other person's flesh. You! Can't you see this? You! You need to die to self. The Bible doesn't ask us to do this. The tactics and the strategy that the Bible lays out for us is not for us to point the finger. It's not for us to help somebody else to die. It's to put to death ourselves, our desires, our wants, our rights, our holding on to something. And we say, no, Lord, I put it all down. I lay it at your feet. I submit to you. I receive from you your power, your strength, your ability so that I will walk in the life that you have given for me. You see, that brings us to Peter's second point about doing or living good lives. He says, do good deeds. Do good deeds. Which prompts us to ask, what defines, who defines what is good? And what are the kinds of good deeds we should do? Well, as we sang and as we were reminded consistently, it is God who is all good, all the time, who defines what is good. He sets the standards. He provides the context. He's the one who approves or disapproves. He's the one who is pleased or grieved. Our every action begins in God and is completed in God. And God has provided all that we need to taste and see, to experience what is good. It is when we have established ourselves in a good God, when our identity is founded firm in our relationship with our good, good Father, that we can then carry out the good deeds listed in the Bible that God has asked us to do. And what are those good deeds that we must do? Malachi chapter 6 verse 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. When you're trying to put to death somebody else's flesh, you're not walking humbly, right? When you say, Lord God, help me to do justice in all areas of life, in all aspects of society, and help me to love kindness. When the person who is at fault comes before you, are, is your first instinct and response to show kindness or to judge, to have to mete out punishment? He says, look, we, the Lord has shown you what is good. To do justice, to love kindness and, to mer and mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The scriptures direct us to care for widows, orphans, and the poor. We are, to, we are instructed to build one another up, comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received. Deal with one another with understanding. Submit to one another. We are called to serve one another, to pray for one another, to show hospitality, to share the gospel, and to snatch people out of the fire. Again, there doesn't need to be an exhaustive list that you can check off. Ah, I got one, three, and seven. Right? No, no, this is not the point. This is not for any reason that the Lord will even list some of these good deeds. It is for us to go to Him and say, Lord, what is the good deed that I need to do? You may not have the physical strength or the resources or the time to do some of the listed good deeds or what somebody else is doing as a good deed. That's not the point. You're not trying to compare yourself to someone else. You're not trying to say, well, they did these six good deeds. I will do these seven. You're not trying to outdo someone else. You have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what is the good deed that I have to do? 
What is the call that you have for me? Maybe it is simply to pray. Nothing else. I can't do anything else physically. I can't do anything else materially. But I can pray and that's the good deed that I'm going to be committing myself to. You have to seek the Lord to say, Lord, what is the specific call, the gifts and the means that you are giving me to do the good deeds that I am supposed to do? And when we do that, it's because this directive is very clear. We don't make excuses. I, say, ah, I was too tired. I wasn't this. I was that. I couldn't do it. The directive is very clear. Do good deeds. Take action. It may be something very small in the eyes of the world and even in your own eyes. Oh, it's nothing much. I couldn't do anything. You know, that person is doing all this other. It may seem insignificant. Just do it anyway. Leave everything else to God. Galatians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 says this, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This good deeds that the Lord is calling us to in these scriptures it may remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 6 where he said, when you are taking care of the poor and the needy, do it in secret. Don't let others see it and don't make a big deal out of it. Peter's not contradicting that at all. He's not saying, oh, make yourself visible to be made visible. He's saying, make your good deeds visible to point to Jesus so that people will not be able to deny the Lord because they will see that it's not your goodness. You couldn't have done this. And they will notice the good deeds and say, surely there is a God who is good. There is a God who leads. There is a God who is able to help this person. When we abstain from the passions of the flesh and do good deeds by the power and presence of the Lord, for the benefit of others, we demonstrate what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. That's what comes through. That's the message that people will hear. They won't be able to say it like that, but that's what you're saying. So that brings us to this point of application that we need to respond and apply the word of God that we have heard. By being led by the Lord to live good lives. This is not a suffering-free life. This is not a materially prosperous life. It may be, you know. But this is not about what the world will define as goodness. This is about saying, I am living in obedience to the Lord. I know His word for me. I know what He's doing for me. I know what, how to appropriate His power to live this way. And I will live a good life. You see, a perpetual war for all your life against your flesh can be exhausting. You're going to wake up someday and say, oh God, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of my flesh. I'm tired of fighting this war. But that's why we have to come to the Lord. Because in and of ourselves, we cannot do it. We will get tired. We will not be able to run. We will not be able to walk. We will faint. We will stumble. We will fall. We will give up. We will say, no, no. Let the desires go. I'm just going to let this one go. Because I just can't fight anymore. 
That's why we have to come to the Lord and say, Lord God, you have to strengthen me. You have to do this in me. You have to make something off me. In just a minute, we're going to spend some time in prayer. And one of the images that the Bible uses for how you will come to him and how you will be led by him is to say that he takes the old wine and the old wineskins and he brings new wine. He pours new wine and he brings new wine. But you know how the new wine happens? He crushes us. It's in that pressing, it's in that crushing that the new wine is made possible. And this morning I want to challenge you. Even as the team comes and we're going to pray and we're going to spend this time in prayer. I want to challenge you that you would say, Lord God, I want to respond. I want to respond to you to say, Lord God, you press me. You do whatever you want with me. You be my God. You be my Lord. And you bring the new wine. You bring the new self. You help me to crucify the old self with its passions and desires. And you allow me, Lord, to respond to you. As I said earlier, I'm going to close just in terms of what I'm sharing. And then we're going to spend some time in prayer. And I'll say a few more things, right, and just what we want to do. But let's just close this portion and to say, Lord God, let this word now come into us. Oh, Heavenly Father, let the word of God, let these two simple verses that says abstain, abstain, don't indulge. Abstain from sinful desires. Abstain from these things that will keep you from me. Lord, let us do that by bringing all our desires to you by submitting everything to you. And then, Lord, your call, your directive, your command to do good deeds, not defined by ourselves, but made sense of only in Christ Jesus. Lord, come and do your work in us this morning that we may respond to your word. In Jesus' name I pray.